The episode you're about to hear is sponsored by Functional Ecology. The journal is published by the British Ecological Society, which is the largest ecological society in Europe with members from across the globe. The society envisions a world inspired, informed, and influenced by ecology. Functional Ecology publishes research that enables a mechanistic understanding of ecological pattern and process from the organismic to the ecosystem scale, asking the how and why questions in ecology. This season, we're partnering with Functional Ecology to highlight the research and scientists they publish. We work with journal editors to identify a topic that is perfect for big biology, and then we produce the episode with the same rigor as we would any other episode. Here's the show. Time generally isn't kind to living organisms. As we age, our bodies start to break down, our muscles get weaker, our vision gets blurry, and our hearing starts to fade. It's not just one part of the body. Aging has major effects on almost everything. Our skin, our brains, and if former 80s rocker Axl Rose is any indication, our voices too. As far as we know, every living thing ages, or to be more precise, it senesces. There's even evidence that single-celled organisms senesce. They too experience breakdowns in physiological function as they get older. Senescence is an odd biological phenomenon. If natural selection is constantly ridding lineages of detrimental traits, then why do organisms senesce at all? There are two basic theories to explain how senescence happens. One argues that throughout an organism's life, the environment and the processes of living just wear out our cells. That wear and tear could include the accumulation of unrepaired damage from things like free radicals over time, or the unwanted byproducts of metabolism building up and causing problems. Another theory is that natural selection doesn't have much influence late in life, so it can't eliminate damaging traits in old age. Once an organism stops breeding, it just doesn't really matter if it starts to run slower or see less clearly. Additionally, we could have genes that are super helpful early in life that turn out to harm us later in life. That's an idea called antagonistic pleiotropy. Natural selection favors those traits that help organisms reach reproductive age, even if the mutations that underlie those traits cause trouble later in life. Humans have tried to stop aging for hundreds if not thousands of years. We haven't yet found the fountain of youth, but there are some interventions that seem to have big effects. Since the 1930s, scientists have observed that restricting organisms' diets can slow down the aging process. It's an amazingly repeatable phenomenon. We see it in mice, worms, fruit flies, and monkeys. On this episode, we talk with Jenny Regan and Dan Nussie. They're researchers at the University of Edinburgh who are studying why some organisms age faster or slower than others. They recently published a paper in Functional Ecology that proposes an evolutionary explanation for the anti-aging effects of diet restriction. They believe that a signaling system called the insulin-like signaling pathway, which collects information about the environment, may cue in on the reduction of calories and trigger physiological changes that allow organisms to better survive in environments with fewer calories available. Seasonal variation is one of my favorite ways of illustrating this. If there wasn't uh, variation within seasons across years, um, you could potentially just time your uh, diapause, for example, um, to one cue-like photo period. But um, the, the fact is that you, you might have a warm autumn or you might have a particularly long and hard winter that goes right into spring. Um, and if you mismatch to that, you're screwed. So you, you need to be able to combine multiple inputs to have um, the flexibility to not only predict more predictable oncoming change, but also fluctuations which will 
which, which will happen within those seasons. They believe the system that seems to be related to aging evolved because it allowed organisms to adapt plastically to their environments. We also talked to Dan and Jenny about how to define aging and senescence, the mechanisms that cause senescence to happen, and some of the major theories that scientists use to explain it. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. You're listening to Big Biology. So, and feel free, either one of you at any time, what is aging and what is senescence? Are they different? How are they the same? Does it matter? In terms of the, for example, the ethical sides of biogerontology, people um, often make the argument that uh, you sort of vilify aging and aging should be respected and it can also equal sort of gains, Mm -hmm. including uh, becoming wiser or more experienced, for example. Um, and it doesn't necessarily imply a biological breakdown, whereas senescence does. Um, and chronological aging is something which is, um, it happens at the same rate to everybody, yeah, but biological aging happens, happens at different rates um, and is by rights negative. Yes, physiological deterioration. Uh, I mean, it has to happen over time. <laughs> There's a time dimension, there is, but it doesn't yeah. happen to yeah. have to happen at the same rate. If we take a kind of broad view of, of taxa in the world, so do all organisms age? And you know, what 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 does it mean to age in a in a plant or in a microorganism? Well, I don't think I think that's a, a really interesting and quite a big problem right now. Is so is aging inevitable either theoretically from an evolutionary point of view or in sort of more pragmatic terms? Has anyone got compelling evidence of an organism that is genuinely senescence proof? It is an unbelievably difficult thing to prove without any uh, any doubt. Hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, theoretically, the, it's, the theoretical area now for me is a complete quagmire uh, on the empirical, like empirical side. I mean, there's some pretty astonishing organisms out there, aren't there? There are, yeah. Um, but even if you start simply it's a, a something like a single-celled eukaryote, um, it's it's very difficult to to say what you're tracking when you're talking about aging. I mean, you will have a mother and a daughter cell in, during division, and there is some evidence, isn't there, that the sort of uh, the mother cell will take the brunt yeah. of of time, and um, the division will 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 create a daughter which doesn't carry the the uh, senescence in terms of, for example, molecules yeah. over. Um, but then, when, and how is that manifest phenotypically in the mom in the mother cell? Yeah, they I mean, die. They, they, yeah, I mean, they, they just don't, don't last as long, replicate as long. Replicators, yeah, senescence, yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah I mean, that's the kind of mother machine idea. That's that's. There's been quite a lot of unicellular organisms where that has been observed, and even where, um, I mean, historically, it was first observed in uh, unicells that have a really quite distinct uh, mother offspring or parent offspring phenotype but uh, latterly there's all kinds of stuff in E. coli mm-hmm. where it's really really hard to think what's going on where they're different where you can track mm-hmm. uh, the kind of the old poles of the cells and, and see that mm-hmm. sort of effect mm-hmm. yeah. so yeah. It, it looks pretty pretty prevalent. I, I did a, some googling around to look for you know extraordinary things about aging and senescence in, in animals and, and websites kept bringing up um, Hydra and and claiming oh hydra don't don't senesce so so is it just bs i mean is it are they wrong or 
I don't know. You need to get a hybrid expert on. I think the um, okay. This is going to be really controversial. If controversial. Any, <laughs> all right. Let's go. Honest, they're gonna. Okay. All right. Um, so there are some amazing papers looking at uh, lab lines um, of hydra, which suggest extraordinary lifespan for such a simple organism under standard laboratory conditions. But it's a very, very artificial situation, and it's totally unclear why they should be so long-lived, why the mortality in the lab should be so very low. Um, I think a lot of species of hydra, they have an asexual and a potentially sexual phase. Um, and the papers that tend to talk about negligible senescence and very long life, they focus exclusively on the asexual reproduction, uh, and they tend not to mention or they don't observe sexual reproduction. Was, I've seen some papers recently suggest that the reproductive phase can really turn that on its head, and you can see situations where as they go into a reproductive phase, they invest all their um, their kind of resources in that, and uh, after sexual reproduction, they can actually wither away and die. Mm. And that uh-huh. does sound like senescence. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite species specific. I think some species do that, some don't. Um, huh. I don't know enough about the biology of the organism to know for sure, but I think it's probably an oversimplification to go from one species with long cultured lions in the lab uh, mm-hmm. to draw a conclusion about that kind of organism and what's actually going on in the wild. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Although, if, if I get any complaint letters for that, I'm sending them to you. So. <laughs> please, please do. I, I would love to answer those. Let's do the uh, let's do the big ones. I mean, we know some things about uh, mammals and birds and things like this, differences among them. What are the general patterns there? Uh, I mean, like at, at the highest level, closest to fitness from an evolutionary point of view, it's uh, de- increasing mortality with age and declining reproductive output or however you want to measure mm-hmm. reproductive performance. I mean, I think that's pretty much nailed on in, uh, I think in invertebrates generally, there are some slightly unusual examples, but I think when you look hard enough and you have the right kind of uh, detailed longitudinal data tracking individuals, you can see that process manifest. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the sort of the underlying mechanisms of why aging senescence is happening. But are there differences with, between those classes? You know, b- bats and, and birds are sort of uh, pointed at as, wow, look, look how much longer they live compared to the average mammal of the same body size. Yep. I mean, I think that, that holds, but the mechanisms underpinning those differences are very, very poorly understood. They are. I mean, I know some people have taken, for example, birds of about the same size. For, ex- for example, I think uh, like quails versus parrots, where you've got 10 years on average for a quail and 100 years for some species of parrot. Uh, people have been trying to look at, for example, metabolic dynamics and mitochondria and compare the contrast between the two. Um, but I think, like Dan said, still it's really the jury's out in terms of mechanism and what the differences are between those yeah, it wasn't so long ago, I think, that people, you, you could find examples in the literature where people were saying, for example, that long-lived seabirds don't, they don't senesce, that we can't really mm-hmm. find evidence that, or even that wild animals generally they don't manifest senescence, and that's just been proved to be, like, just it's just untrue. Um, it's just been a case of people doing the right kinds of studies to be able to document yeah. the pattern, and the thing, well, for me, in terms of working in wild animals, the challenge is now to understand the process and what's driving that pattern. Uh, which we still have a very, very poor, <laughs> poor understanding of, I think. The, whether it's the same, I mean, you, there's so much understood now and so exciting what's going on in, in lab studies and biogerontology. Uh, so for me, what is a big question is, 
are the same sorts of processes and mechanisms that are being identified in that field, are they in play in the wild? Uh, or is it different things that are driving ultimately the same pattern in terms of mortality and yeah. fertility? Mm-hmm. And I, I guess the interesting thing that I think that's coming out of lab studies is is the level of conservation in terms of underlying mechanism um, driving senescence in everything from, from yeast to humans. Mm-hmm. And that makes it, I think, um, more likely that we're going to find evidence for this being important in the wild. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe since we're talking about lab studies, can you just give us an example of, of one and, you know, what are the kinds of measurements that people make, the kind of manipulations that they do, um, and, and what can you find out from a lab study that you can't from the wild? Well, as an experimental biologist, I would say a lot, a lot of things. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> but for, a, a good example would maybe be uh, looking at the role for, for mTOR. Um, in aging and and this was something which was really um, you know came from yeast studies Um, and we have some drugs that we can manipulate uh, mTOR signaling with namely rapamycin and this is actually something which um, is used clinically so we can see that there's the same response in terms of aging and lifespan um, in very very diverse organisms in terms of uh, suppressing TOR signaling with with the drug rapamycin. And maybe for our listeners, can you just just explain what is mTOR and what is rapamycin? How, how does rapamycin interact with it? Okay, so uh, mTOR that start actually stands for target of rapamycin. So um, <laughs> you can see that the target, target was discovered after the after the drug and its effects. Um, so uh, TOR signaling is is um, something which is a sort of hub for controlling. Um, cellular and tissue uh, responses to to among things uh, among other things nutritional status so so taurus is um, responsible for switches between uh, sort of anabolic and catabolic processes in cells so building up or, or breaking down basically um, and rapamycin is is a drug which very effectively suppresses tor and tor signaling happens um, in conditions of, of high nutrients so if you uh, treat an organism with rapamycin, then you're, you're basically um, telling it that it's under conditions of low nutrition um, by suppressing TOR signaling artificially using that drug. Um, and, that, and that actually moves uh, organisms into um, more uh, catabolic processes, so sort of breaking down um, hmm. and low energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so if you had a flask of, of yeast and you treated it with rapamycin, what what would be the phenotypic effects on on the yeast? Or pick whatever other organism you want. We don't talk about yeast. Yeah, Let, let's not go for yeast. Um, if you, yeah, okay, no yeast. <laughs> if you looked at, at flies, for example, or, or even mice, um, you would see uh, lower uh, cell growth, um, lower rates of cell division. You would see higher levels of processes like autophagy. Um, which sort of recycle, break down and recycle um, macromolecules in the cell. Um, and you would see a generally sort of inhibition of, of protein translation and all of those kind of um, processes which are, uh, require energy and would build up uh, tissues. Hmm. So you would see smaller cells basically and less division. That's the sort of bottom line. And, and what effect would that have on aging of the flies or the mice? Um, well, it would... It would... Or senescence, I should say. Sorry. <laughs> Get it right. So all... all... <laughs> <laughs> all measurable aging phenotypes seem to be slowed down in these conditions. Um, lifespan is extended uh, really strongly 
um, in both. Um, we can see that in arthropods and in mammals. Um, and you also get uh, a very strong drop in fecundity. So you get this lifespan extension and um, you get this uh, reduction in ageing pathology. But you hmm. then on the flip side, you get much lower fecundity, yeah. hmm. which you can understand because it's involved in cell growth and division. So let's um, maybe pull back to what Art calls 30,000 feet and um, talk about the why senescence uh, may differ among species or especially individuals. I think that's probably where the conversation probably needs to go to be able to, to, to get to um, your ideas about plasticity and such. Um, what evidence is there that sort of rates of aging can evolve in populations? Uh, there's pretty good evidence from... Um artificial selection experiments in things like Drosophila that uh, that you can have impacts by selecting on things like early fecundity or vice versa on kind of late fecundity. You can have sort of antagonistic impacts on the other end of life. Uh, I think those sorts of experiments do provide some quite compelling evidence that ageing and lifespan can evolve. Um, uh, in terms of watching it evolve in situ in the wild, that's a, that's a hell of a thing. <laughs> a little bit more um, difficult? Yeah, more challenging. Um, and I think uh, what we have in the world is more kinds of tests of uh, the predictions of evolutionary theory about what we would expect mm -hmm. to see under certain assumptions, certain uh, forms of theory, either across species or within species. There's certainly a lot of, a lot of evidence for genetic control, right. which yeah. is what you need. All the ingredients are there. You know, I think one of the big issues is actually that uh, the evolutionary theory of ageing uh, views aging as the result of a kind of a failure of selection, if you like. It's the kind of weakening of selection with age, which uh, allows it to um, arise under natural selection, which should be working against something that is by definition bad for physiology, bad for fitness. Um, so it, it's a it's kind of a tricky prospect. You're kind of looking uh, into an area of of the lifespan which is which is under very weak selection. Um, so th there's a lot of different questions about there. Like, so for example, mutation accumulation experiments, where they're looking for the path. Uh, are there particular uh, are mutations more likely to arise at particular ages, or is it kind of random with respect to age? That would have a lot of uh, importance in terms of what what it might do in terms of the evolution of aging and the theories of aging. Those are, I think I don't, again don't know very much. Those seem like very very difficult experiments to do. Um, so they are, they're often, when they are done, they're maybe not, even though they're massive, they're not done at sufficient scale. So uh, very, very challenging. Um, yeah, so you're, you're kind of thinking about trying to understand the evolution of something that is, uh, uh, is basically a manifestation of, of a failure or weakening of natural selection. So, uh, Dan, it's sort of, seems that what's going on in the wild is you know difficult to wrap one's head around causality and you know a lot of the things that we don't necessarily know but there's presumably value in investigating aging in the field so yeah. what have we learned from wild animals that maybe informs what could be done in the lab or how we're going to focus that's a very interesting question so i um I can I can do that in two parts, I think. So um, I can tell you what we've learned, or I think we've learned, in the wild. The second part is about how that goes back into the lab. Now, that is the thing that's very interesting to me, because I'm not sure we're there yet, and I'm not sure the connections between 
uh, evolutionary ecologists and biogerontologists are sufficiently strong that that even if there was quite a lot to take, that that would necessarily happen. And that's to the detriment of both fields. I think it works the other way, that evolutionary ecologists are not paying enough attention to what's going on in modern biogerontology uh, as well and kind of think about, well, how could we test these things and interrogate these things under more natural conditions, which is very, very important. I mean, I think we've we've come to an agreement that it works both ways. It, you need both sides of that equation, even if they're very, very different systems. Uh, you have to ask the questions in very different ways to get a more complete understanding of what's going on. Um, in terms of what we've learned in the wild, I think, first of all, we've put to bed once and for all this uh, idea that basically mortality is so high in the wild that animals and other organisms in the world don't experience senescence that's clearly wrong mm-hmm. and where we look in the right kind of way we see this process um i think we have been able to provide some particularly in kind of long-term vertebrate studies some quite compelling support for some very important ideas uh from the evolutionary theories of aging so there's some studies now one one key idea is that for aging to evolve there has to be sort of age-dependent genetic effects. So uh, the effects of genes, they they have a different effect depending on the age at which they're expressed. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. there's nothing really for selection to work with uh, in an age-dependent manner. So I think uh, some long-term studies combined with these kind of quantitative genetic approaches and very detailed understanding of the pedigree of the population um, are showing us that that exists in the wild. It's very difficult to get at, but we, we have a number of studies now that that seem to be picking out this age-dependent genetic variation. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing that's coming out is evidence for trade-offs consistent with an idea. I think antagonistic pleiotropy is how I tend to think about mm-hmm. it. But mm-hmm. People refer to it in, in different ways. But the idea that um, investing in reproduction growth in early life uh, has sort of detrimental knock-on consequences for your ability to kind of uh, maintain uh, kind of uh, basic physiological function long term so it could be damage it could be uh, drawing limited resources away from uh, fundamental maintenance function and it results in uh, sort of reduced lifespan or faster or more rapid aging so I think there's quite a number of studies now from uh, wild animals that support that idea mm. can I put you on the spot to give mm. us an example I mean that, that was a, a fine explanation um, but I Sometimes it's helpful to ground it in, you know, the details of some particular vertebrate system. Well, on the understanding, it's not necessarily the best example. Um, work that I did quite a long time ago now on this really amazing, I, I should stress, I'm not involved in collecting the data on these kinds of projects. They go back decades and decades, and it's other sure. field ecologists that have been responsible for setting up these projects and field researchers monitoring the animals very, very closely over their natural lifetimes over many, many years that generates these phenomenal long-term studies. But this long-term study of red deer on the Isle of Rum uh, mm-hmm. off the west coast of Scotland, uh, it's coming close to its 50th year now. It's one of the longest-running mammalian wow. studies, I think. Incredible. Um, and these animals are caught at birth, marked, and followed right the way through their natural lifetimes. We have almost perfect information on their mortality, uh, reproduction, um, so how, how they fare in terms of their offspring uh, reproductive investment. So something we were able to show quite early on when we when we looked was that females in that population, um, they start to show very clear signs of senescence in terms of increasing mortality risk and reductions in reproductive performance at about the age of nine, nine years old. They can live into their early 20s, the mm-hmm. females. Um, and a really quite high proportion, if they get through the first year of life, which is very challenging, they will live into that senescent phase. 
Mm-hmm. So it, it's a period of life, even though they're, they're deteriorating, that, that many of them will survive to experience. And we found that uh, the number of times they bred in that early period before nine, um, sometimes they, they only produce one offspring a year, but sometimes they skip years, sometimes they skip two years. But the more offspring they produced in early life, the more rapidly uh, they declined in their reproductive performance in the second half of life. So it's a kind of classic trade-off between what they're doing early and what they're doing late. And I think there's been quite a number of studies now, particularly in birds and mammals, that have shown similar things. Hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let me, uh, if I can just kind of summarize these theories that we've been talking about and then ask you about a couple of others. So so um, it sounds like one of them is this idea of mutation accumulation, which is that the power of selection declines with age. And so you get the accumulation of deleterious alleles just, just because selection is weak. Another one is antagonistic pleiotropy, which is what you yeah. were just talking about, right? So these are allelic variants that have uh, positive effects early in life at a cost of negative effects yeah. late in life. Are, are there other major theories of aging that are, that are reasonable and that people are pursuing? Uh, they're, they're not necessarily theories of aging. They're genetic mechanisms. The theory pertains to the weakening of selection with age, and these are genetic routes through which that can lead to the evolution of senescence. Um, okay. Okay. So, so the evolutionary theory is that, I mean, I, I basically stated that those evolutionary yeah, yeah. effects, the, the weakening, yeah, weakening of yeah. selection. Um, okay. So into other theories. So people talk about disposable soma theory. Um, that's really tricky uh, because it's, it's quite hard to differentiate from antagonistic pliotropy. Yeah. So it, disposable soma theory reframes the ideas you've just stated sort of classically uh, antagonistic pliotropy comes from population quantitative genetics in terms of uh, resource allocation trade-offs, basically. And the idea okay. being that uh, you have limited resources it, with, with different fitness functions to invest those in. If you invest them in growth and reproduction, you, you don't have resources therefore available to invest in somatic maintenance. And because selection weakens uh, in later life with age, um, it makes more evolutionary sense as a kind of greater fitness payoff to invest those resources in earlier reproduction and growth and maybe short-term maintenance at a cost to longer-term maintenance selection is kind of too weak later on to, uh, to make that worthwhile. That's the idea. It's, uh, it, uh. Viewed from a quantitative genetic viewpoint, it's very hard to separate that idea from antagonistic pliotropy. Yeah, and similarly, I think something like hyperfunction theory, which is the, the idea that you, you switch on a process early in life, yeah. which, you, which you never switch off later on, which becomes detrimental to your health. Mm-hmm. But that in itself sort mm-hmm. of relies on there not being uh, strong enough selection for that to be tuned to your needs later on. Yeah. Right? So it's, they're all very linked, I think, to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it all kind of comes back to the weakening mm-hmm. of selection with that's advancing the, age. That's the fundamental uh, idea yeah. and the sort of fundamental theoretical challenge to really kind of get right... Uh, and then, then these are more kind of, this is more about how, how genes act in an age-specific manner to impact physiology, cellular process and physiology, and then sort of scale up to fitness. I think a big, big challenge at the moment, um, one that we're, well, I'm, I'm not because I can't do maths, but um, working <laughs> with theoreticians to try and get ahead of them. Um, well, I, I somehow doubt that. Uh, trust me. <laughs> um, uh, is to, so the theory, the, the kind of classical evolutionary theory of aging it, it it's about the Hamilton's work is about mapping vital rates, so age-specific mortality and fecundity, onto however 
you might want to conceptualize overall fitness. And I mean, I, I normally think about phenotypes, life history, traits, behavior, uh, morphological traits, thinking about physiological traits. The, the theory doesn't really provide a platform to think about how phenotypes map into that. It's kind of genotype, vital rate, fitness. Um, and so we're kind of missing a step in the hierarchy, which makes it quite hard from an evolutionary point of view to make sense of the diversity of patterns of senescence that you see in one organism, like in a lab, but you see it with flies all the time. They do, they, not every trait that you measure is senescing the same way or even at all. Um, so I, for me, that's a big challenge right now as a kind of whole, you've got empirical studies mapping this kind of diversity of phenotypic changes with age and just the kind of vacuum in terms of theory. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's an interesting place. It's sort of, it, the balance needs to be addressed though. So I, I don't want to go too far from the, the big picture theory, but I do have one selfish question that now that I have the two experts here, I'm going to ask you guys, is there any consistency in the systems that fail first? I mean, or, or are there systems across taxa that are protected you know, sort of longer than others? Humans classically, like kind of brain, neural systems seems to be protected, right? Yeah. Yeah. Does that hold? Um I mean, we see brain aging, and yeah. we see and we see a reduction in performance, which can definitely be pointed to brain aging as well. Okay. Um, so it it is. I mean, we know it as a protective protected organ, mm. um, but it's not. Um, it's not immune to sure. the impacts of aging, and it's something but which does is it measurable. go consistently late. In kind of lab model organisms compared to other well, systems. Well, I, I would say so. Yes. Okay. So, so um, we see we generally see brain aging following um, increased inflammation, for example, mm-hmm. um, and one uh, particular nexus for aging seems to be um, the gut um, across species. So, so decrease in, in in gut function and potentially in interactions with the microbiome. Uh, seems to be something that changes in sort of early middle age. Um, and that is obviously very tightly linked with inflammatory status. So uh, I think I might be, well, I'm certainly biased um, <laughs> because I work because I work on the immune system. Um, but uh, inflammation does seem to be something which is key and does precede uh, physiological aging of tissues like the brain. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, the immune system seems to... Interesting go in so many different complicated ways at different times mm-hmm. uh, that it's kind of it's a bit unfathomable to me it's not really one, <laughs> you can't sort of say this is one phenotype or anything like that it's a lot of different things doing a lot of different uh, yeah, complicated yeah. Uh, sort of things with age as well yeah and of course it's very um very influenced by environmental mm-hmm. factors as well so, Absolutely. so rates of aging mm-hmm. are going to be very much impacted mm-hmm. with your um interaction with pathogens and, yeah. and microbes and I think peak kind of muscular performance seems to go quite early, quite consistently, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. That's something that can go uh, in kind of relatively early prime adulthood. But it's a question of whether it matters. For example, from yes. in the wild, like if you look at kind of elite athletes, they don't, they don't, they don't remain elite for very long. Um, uh, and but I'm not sure how that level of performance translates to um, a kind of context where natural selection will be operating. Yeah. And also, you get these compensatory effects, which. Uh, 
which you can see, I think, in, in athletics as well, of kind of experiences. Did you, did you see that paper on tennis players, professional tennis players no, recently? I didn't um, where they're looking, well, they're looking at kind of first serve um, power and accuracy. And they show, so obviously both, both decline from, I guess, sort of mid-20s onwards, something like that, but they compensate. So you've got oh, people who kind nice. of your your pace is falling away your first yeah. serve, but you're compensating by being more accurate. Yeah, so yeah. that that's the kind of thing that I could be think could be going on in the wild. Yeah. I see lots of examples of animals becoming, I think, older this, and wiser. This is what I tell my kids. So so my kids are 15, 15 year old twins, and they're like you know getting a surge of of testosterone and becoming these tall, muscular, strong young men. And they say, you know, dad, we're going to be able to beat up on you. And it's like, nah, I still got dad moves. You know, <laughs> yeah. That's the wisdom of accumulated, the accumulated and decades. Also stamina. So. Yeah. There's, there's, there's stamina, isn't yeah. there? So, yeah. So, yeah. you know, this peaks much later. And there's, there's a real difference between, you know, frailty and, and uh, decline in peak performance, mm. I think. Yeah. yeah. I still think they'll be able to beat you at tennis quite soon, but. Uh. <laughs> All right. Well, um, we also wanted to talk some about your your very recent functional ecology paper on dietary restriction and insulin-like signaling pathways and the sort of ways in which that can be modified uh, potentially adaptively. So thinking about adaptive plasticity. Um, so maybe we can start by talking just a little bit about dietary restriction and how it affects aging and, and senescence. So. Okay, so th this is something with a very long history, actually. So dietary restriction in the lab um, was was first published on in the 30s, um, and it was shown to to quite spectacularly extend lifespan in in rats. Um, so it's been known for a long time that it's it's something that works uh, in almost all species tested um, across taxa. You you restrict food uh, not to starvation levels. But you res you restrict the amount of calories or specific nutrients, and there are some distinctions, um, and that's an important thing. Um, but a restriction of food basically equals an extended lifespan. Hmm. Uh, DR itself is kind of an umbrella term um, which people have used to describe both caloric restriction, and you can restrict calories in various ways. You could dilute food. Um, or you can give reduced portions of food, or you could restrict feeding time, depending on your model organism. Um, but it also has been applied to um, to manipulation of macronutrients and ratios of macronutrients within the diet as well. Mm. So it's a little bit tricky mm. in that it covers quite a lot of manipulations, but altogether, um, usually if, if you put an organism under dietary restriction, they live for longer. And, and what, what are the typical macronutrients that are, that are manipulated? Are we talking about like protein or carbohydrates? Lipids? Yeah, generally. So it's, it's species-specific. Um, in, in flies, for example, and also in mammals, um, there's manipulation of, of proteins versus carbohydrates, for example. But then in other species, it might be that lipids are more important. So in some fish studies, for example, it, it seems that the manipulation of lipids per se is, is very important hmm. for so how did the field progress that way, Jenny? Was it people sort of started doing food restriction in a broad sense without really paying much attention, and then they adjusted the research for the diets to be specific to the organisms that they were studying? I just find it fascinating and perplexing, too, 
that the restriction of nutrients would have the same effect as the absolute restriction of calories because how that works on a physiological level is so incredibly different. Yes. Yeah. And it, and, and certainly has not been untangled mm -hmm. yet either. Um, and I think probably getting to the specifics of macronutrients is something which is a relatively recent mm -hmm. thing. So um, it, dietary restriction in terms of caloric restriction um, has been has been going on for for some time in the lab. But um, looking at specific macronutrients in a way which is called nutritional geometry, so uh, varying uh, ratiometric varying of nutrients and looking at um, responses across a kind of map mm -hmm. of, of nutrition um, has been able to be much more specific about nutritional optima for particular species. Hmm. Um, and there will be, interestingly with that, it's... It, we're able to see that there are different optima for, for different processes. So for lifespan, lifespan may have a different nutritional optimum than, hmm. than uh, fecundity, for example. And how far is this geometry pushed? Is that you know, specific to critical amino acids and particular vitamins? Does it go that far? Yeah. So, th so that's, yeah, that would be the next step is, is the so-called elemental mm -hmm. diets. Um, and, they, and they've broken down um, into, for example... All, all different essential amino acids hmm. and being able to to increase or withdraw entirely uh, individual amino acids from the diet, for example. Hmm. This has been very helpful in terms of looking what in, into which particular signaling pathways are affected by different uh, nutritional manipulations. There, there have been studies on dietary restriction in, in humans too, right? And so maybe can you describe how do those studies progress and what happens to the people and should we all be restricting our diets? <laughs> well, yeah. So it's, it's, quite, it's quite difficult to achieve compliance, let's say, <laughs> with yeah. humans. Lo lo when, lots of cheating out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you're not in charge of uh, dosing their food every day. Um, so there, there have been some uh, bigger trials. Um, for example, there's a trial called the Calorie Trial um, in humans, which um, has, you know, have uh, many participants and really quite an impressive power. And uh, they've been able to do some longitudinal modelling uh, with people who have uh, apparently adhered to the, <laughs> to the diet restriction that has been imposed on them. Self-reported self adherence. Huh? <laughs> exactly. But these generally tend to be quite um, achievable uh, dietary manipulations. So I don't know exactly what the percentage reduction in calories was, but it's not something which is difficult to maintain. Um, and actually, these studies have have seen uh, really quite quick and quite significant impact on um, factors which can be moni monitored like uh, insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity for example um, how well people deal with with glucose and um, also other measures of fitness but of course um, longitudinal aging studies in people are quite difficult to do uh, so they're not coupled with um, lifespan analysis. They, they of course, record a disease incidents, etc. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So uh, you, you, you wrote this paper, and I guess there's a few other authors, for a special issue on senescence. And yet the title of your paper 
does not include the word senescence or aging or anything to that effect. And in fact, the paper's not about yes. senescence. <laughs> it depends on, you know, I, I, every day I feel more and more that it is. But anyway, um, the, the crux of the paper is that insulin-like pathways in mTOR, and, and you guys should use the better words because I'm going to try to paraphrase and probably mess it up. But the, the idea is that these pathways exist to provide a form of adaptive plasticity and especially predictive adaptive plasticity. So what do you mean by that? And and I guess I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you why you didn't put senescence and aging in the title, although, Dan, you've sort of <laughs> hinted what that might be in the first place. I mean, how do you want us to understand what this diet restriction and nutrient sensing means okay. for adaptive plasticity? So probably worth just starting by by maybe framing the evolution of that paper, because I think I was approached, wasn't I, about to put a paper into that special issue. And it is the whole special issue is supposed to be about the evolution of senescence and uh, kind of, yeah, I don't know if it was specifically about kind of wild animals, but initially uh, we thought about it as a uh, kind of perspective on plasticity of senescence um, with a section on DR. Mm -hmm. And can't remember exactly what happened. Uh, like maybe a couple, a couple of our co-authors got slightly sidetracked actually. Um, and we ended up getting quite, I think between us convincing ourselves of this idea, this idea was worth pursuing and it to about DR and what it might be. Uh, and that to, to make a go of that idea, we'd need to invest quite a lot of our time and it would basically the paper would have to be that. And that's what we did with, with the blessing, I think, of the editors. I think we told them after we'd written it. But I think they said it was okay. So, uh, I mean, obviously, the, the DR, the diet restriction paradigm, is very important in biogerontology for our understanding of... Uh, it's the kind of most robust environmental intervention affecting lifespan and aging in the lab that we currently have, right? But what we are saying about it, while it could have implications for aging, the main focus is more about, well, what, why has this response and the pathways that Jenny's already talked about, mTOR and uh, insulin-like signaling pathways, why have they evolved uh, and sort of our feeling, well, my, I don't know if you can speak for yourself, but my feeling uh, that the available um, explanations, evolutionary explanations for DR were sort of inadequate. They just didn't feel big enough to be able to explain this incredibly robust and repeatable phenomenon. That we have. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, it is very relevant to studies of aging generally, uh, not just biogerontology, um, that whether or not the response to DR was, was an adaptive response is really mm. in debate. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like it's not wholly, no. wholly irrelevant to, a, to an issue on senescence and aging. <laughs> Um, it's, mm -hmm, I, keep, mm -hmm. I keep getting slightly sidetracked by the irony. So when I, I did my PhD and a bit of work subs subsequently on phenotypic plasticity and then sort of left that behind to focus on ageing and sort of inadvertently have, with this have got sucked back very hard into the literature on uh, adaptive plasticity and ended up with a paper that was supposed to be about senescence that, that really isn't about senescence, it's about plasticity. But yeah. that's what happens. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, well, maybe talk about that. So, So where does this pathway come from in an evolutionary sense and how how does it come to integrate so many different environmental factors and and what are those factors i mean i guess that's the kind of the, the crux of what we were driving at was that everyone in the biogerontology field is focused on this as these pathways as being nutrient they call them nutrient sensing pathways and they're focused on what they do in response to variation in diet mm -hmm. and 
I mean, I think we were both of the opinion that there was quite a lot of evidence out there that they were responding to other things. Yeah. And it, I think it was only when you went into the like deeper into the literature and started pulling out quite so many different things that was responding to that we started to think, what on earth is this? And the idea that it could actually be this kind of integrative pathway that was actually taking information from all other kinds of sensing pathways and putting it together. And this this won't be new this won't be news to people who work on these pathways. So people, for example, who specialise in, in mTOR signaling know very well that it responds to multiple inputs. Um, it's just that I, I think particularly the biogerontology field have, has become very focused on its ro- role as a nutrient sensing mm-hmm. pathway. Right, um, right. It's all about yeah, nutrients. Yeah. Forget everything else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, so what are some of these other factors that, that it's integrated? Um, so for, for, it might be easier to start by saying that these two pathways, uh, target of rapamycin and, and insulin-like signaling pathways, um, they, they cross-regulate in a way where I think it was, it's probably appropriate to call them a network. So um, if we sort of deal with them together, um, they, between them, uh, integrate information on, on, on temperature, uh, photo period, on uh, tourists sensitive to oxygen levels, for example, um, uh, to uh, circadian inputs. Yeah, <laughs> responds to response to uh, got a long to, list here. to uh, immune challenge and, and temperature and yeah, lots of, lots of environmental inputs. Ah. Yeah, yeah. Huh. lots of lots of inputs that should be very very important from an evolution point of view. Like if you can pick up and and that from my perspective, working on I suppose on uh, wild mammals uh, that that come as a package. Like they, it's I mean there will be circumstances where you get individual inputs. Of, one or two of these things, but generally uh, the environment often shifts in a kind of multivariate way, um, often in a predictable way in some manner. So being able to pick up complex multivariate environmental signals seems like it should be important. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so this is kind of your multivariate sensor that's keeping exactly. track of this giant network of interacting yeah. factors. And I, yeah. and I feel like yeah. uh, it should be clarified that they don't necessarily um, perform the absolute role of sensing these mm. But they integrate yeah. uh, or are responsive to uh, changes in these yeah. factors. Just, just thinking about you know, <laughs> how over evolutionary time would would you link up all of these different? So, so I guess I guess the question is what what are the molecular and signaling ways by which all of that information gets integrated into this this central pathway? Not not I mean we don't need like super gnarly molecular <laughs> details here, but just just at, at a general level, how do you link up so many things to one one system? Uh, yeah, that's a difficult question. Um, well, it's, presumably it's integrating different different sources of kind of cellular information. It's not pretty much just just one thing. Yeah, that's kind of thing. I don't know the details of the, the kind of molecular biology. But, yeah, um, I, I mean, there's there. I, I I guess there's there's a range of sort of proximal sensors, mm-hmm. right? Um, and they will. I mean the. How can we sort of act as a sort of hub? Yeah, but I mean, so the, the nutrient sensing pathways. This this was a big like eye opener for me uh, as you were kind of like digging into the literature. That I've I've always taken as read they were nutrient sensing pathways, and you were kind of uh, showing me papers where like these they're not the nutrient sensing pathways. They're picking up sort of secondary signals from the true nutrient sensing pathways that are picking up yeah. things about carbohydrate levels and stuff like that. So I guess if it can that can be done 
I don't know Zeta Berserk. That can be done with one yeah. source of information or one sort of downstream uh, uh, kind of mechanism or input, and it can be done with others. But I don't know whether, like with the circadian stuff, is there any kind of sort of translating mechanism? into systemic signals right. from from lots of different. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Are there are there cell types where these right. systems are sort of disproportionately active? Uh, well, for insulin signaling, yes. I mean, there are there are particular neurons that produce uh, insulin or insulin-like peptides, for example. Um, so, in in the fly brain, there's a very small set of neurons that are responsible for for um, producing uh, insulin-like peptides mm-hmm. into into the uh, systemic body of the fly, mm-hmm. and now and in in terms of the inputs that they get, um, you know, information on on temperature, for example, um, photo period, um, and that's that's sort of integrated into these neurons, and that affects the the amount of insulin like peptides that are secreted. Mm-hmm. My favorite sentence in the the paper, um, what, you know, it's nice to have this succinct thing that just jumps out. Why we wrote this? These pathways allow organisms, directly quoting you guys, allow organisms to better match their level of reproduction to environmental conditions. So can you can you sort of put that in this uh, adaptive plasticity and especially predictive plasticity frame of of mind and and why it's valuable to think about that in an evolutionary context? I mean. From, from an evolutionary context, I guess the way you're thinking about it in terms of the importance of being able to uh, take cues, potentially quite complex cues in the environment, and use those cues to predictively direct physiology in quite a, admittedly quite a nebulous and, uh, and flexible way uh, to better anticipate coming environmental challenges. So for me, the really important thing is the distinction in this form of plasticity between the cue and what you might call the agent of selection, the actual environmental pressure that is is actually enforcing, uh, affecting fitness and enforcing selection. So they, they are to some degree uh, decoupled, potentially by, by quite a long period of time. I mean, it's, it's the potential importance of having a system that can... Uh, can integrate information uh, and and then trigger uh, an appropriate physiological response. Um, and we, I mean, we talked quite a lot about uh, and thought quite a lot about diapause and reproductive dormancy. These kind of deep uh, physiological remodeling responses that we see in many organisms, that's fair to say, um, in response to seasonal environments. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and and these pathways are heavily implicated in those kinds of responses. They're an extreme uh, physiological response, but they require. Uh, I guess detecting cues like photo period, temperature, things like that, responding to them ahead of, mm-hmm. uh, for example, the dead of winter, which is going to kill you if you haven't responded. Yeah, yeah, and I, but I think the seasonal variation is is one of my favourite ways of illustrating this because you can you can picture both um, seasonal variation, which should be predictable, which is the fact that winter's going to come and it's going to get colder um, and this is going to be pretty well aligned with changes in day length. But there is going to be variation within seasons as well. Um, And so you want to be able to match your physiology to that just as much as the predictability of oncoming winter. So if there wasn't uh, 
variation within seasons across years, um, you could potentially just time your uh, diapause, for example, um, to one cue-like photo period. Mm -hmm. But um, the, the fact is that you, you might have a warm autumn or you might have a particularly long and hard winter that goes right into spring. Mm -hmm. um, and if you mismatch to that, you're screwed. Yeah. So you, you need to be able to combine multiple inputs to have um, the flexibility to not only predict more predictable oncoming change, but also fluctuations which will, which, which will happen within so that season. So can I try to connect this to aging, even though, again, it wasn't the original motivation of the paper? <laughs> is, there, is there evidence to suggest that organisms that have sort of lived through these uh, winters or extreme seasons that didn't match predictions senesce faster? than others or those that live in especially unpredictable habitats you know they would be expected to, to age faster mm -hmm. too there's some i don't think in the context of uh studying animals in in the wild experiencing kind of real environmental variation but uh there was a paper published a few years ago it, using an extraordinary experimental kind of long-term experiment on i think it's mouse lemurs in france do you remember that one yeah. um where they were actually manipulating so they uh, they're triggering uh, a kind of seasonal shift using photoperiod, was it, uh, in the lab? Yeah. And they basically were doing this. Uh, I mean, obviously, the animals are expecting this annually, but they're kind of increasing the rate at which this trigger is uh, is set off um, across an animal's life and therefore triggering whatever physiological remodeling response uh, goes on. And they, they found that that alone, so there's no... It, uh, they're just they're not imposing any kind of environmental stress on the animal they're just triggering this seasonal response so the number of times you'd had to go through that uh, and not your age or over and above your age was predictive of your lifespan mm -hmm. so they're suggesting there was a cost of this kind of uh, need to respond to these sort of seasonal changes without the environmental selection pressure which I found really uh, quite remarkable and they were kind of putting forward the idea in, in this paper that that uh, this seasonal or um, forms of uh, physiological response, response remodeling is really, really costly. And actually, it could be a big driver of biological aging, uncoupling it from chronological mm. aging. But a big part of what constitutes senescence in the world is actually going through those changes, uh, which we, I mean, we do, right? Uh, even even uh, as humans living in the environment we live in, we still experience many of those kind of changes as kind of winter comes and Incomes, that that's that's really costly physiologically it's a really interesting idea yeah, but it yeah. ties in with this. and that that so that illustrates nicely what the cost of switching might be um but i don't think uh it's been very well approached in lab studies mm -hmm. for example the cost of, of a mismatch mm -hmm. or the cost of uh not properly sensing yeah. variation either and and i think that's something that we started to realize as we were writing this and and thinking that it could be a really nice approach yeah. in, in terms of future research. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a cost cost of plasticity idea rather than a... Mm. I mean, it's obviously uh, in that context, it's impacting what we think about senescence, but really it's a, it's more like a kind of accumulating cost of plasticity, which is it's quite cool. I'm just yeah, glad yeah, I live yeah, in Florida. Really the neat. seasons are much less, uh, much more mild, so I don't have all of these. <laughs> you switching. don't have seasons there. <laughs> It's yeah. well, yeah. it's either hurricanes yeah. or not. I can imagine hurricanes different being quite sources of mortality. That's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, no, I'm 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 sitting here, kind of stewing with an idea as we're talking, and I want to 
go out on a limb and try to articulate this, and I, I may make a total fool of myself, but um, but but here goes. Um, so so I'd say one mystery to me about many. This is again going to connect to aging and senescence. Sorry, but 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 one one mystery to me about a lot of these studies on aging and senescence is that very often you can get lifespan extension, and that very often that seems to come down even to changes in just one or a few genetic loci. And and that doesn't seem to fit somehow with this idea of the fact that uh, natural selection weakens with age. And so if, if it does, then why aren't many systems failing simultaneously? H- how is it that you can get just, you know, sing- single gene profound effects on on aging. And, and I'm, and I'm wondering if your ideas about, um, the, the sort of integrative aspect of mTOR and insulin like signaling pathways, if that, if that explains it. And, and the idea is that, you know, not, not only is it integrating a bunch of different environmental, you know, complex environmental factors, but then it's simultaneously regulating plasticity in lots of downstream mm-hmm. systems and that those systems themselves are, you know, part of what affects aging and senescence. And so, so then if that's the case, then is it, you know, reasonable to say, well, genetic changes that affect that, that integrator itself can have these sort of profound and, you know, wide ranging effects on many systems that could lead to these observed, I don't know, is that a way of, of reconciling those, those observations? I don't think the effects, effects of, if you, the, the way people are tinkering in the lab with these pathways, given what, said about kind of how it affects uh, the switch towards cell recycling autophagy type responses. I don't think it's surprising that in the lab, it extends lifespan and uh, potentially alleviates aging. You're essentially kind of providing cues that tilt physiology towards a more kind of repair and recycling mode. So in the absence of challenge, uh, I think you would expect alleviated aging and longer lifespan. But I think that what you're describing is is what's sort of excited people in biogerontology for the last sort of couple of decades, is that there are these higher order pathways that you can make single genetic changes to that have these multiple downstream mm-hmm. effects. And the fact that they mm-hmm. they do act, they seemingly act as upstream. I don't so I don't see those results as in any way discordant or problematic for evolutionary theory. I mean, no, I just don't no. see uh, it, it's not a it, it's not a puzzle. I mean, they they do profound things to development. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's well, it's it's, it's, yeah. it, 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 it's only a puzzle because I haven't <laughs> yeah. thought about it. So um, it's a puzzle. It's it, a puzzle it to me. Actually, that that was when those early results started coming out in in worms. They were used to challenge evolutionary theory, and I think that that idea has now fallen away. That they're not. Uh, they're not a challenge. It's just about understanding what, what are they really doing. And the big challenge for me is what on earth do those knockouts or manipulations mean in the wild? So yeah. I don't think we oh, know. No, no I, don't take it, the, yeah. I don't take them as, a cha- yeah. as that as a challenge at all yeah. to, to, yeah. Mark, to yeah. understand. Um, yeah, and I think from, well, certainly the way from what I've read and what you've kind of described out, what the, the kind of cellular and kind of physiological response to uh, what DR does to these pathways, again, in a very, very restrictive, uh, controlled, benign environment, doesn't surprise me at all that lifespan is extended and aging is alleviated. Yeah. But if we're right, which we might not be, uh, these pathways have evolved to 
predict something very nasty or something very nice potentially happening in the future. And we're not testing the effect of that in the lab. We're not we're not imposing that selective yeah. agent. So we're completely blind, if that's correct, as to what's actually going on from an evolutionary point of view. Mm-hmm. We're just not seeing it. Okay, so let's um, want to do sort of the forward-looking types of things and, and question systems you, you both would like to work in in the future. But I have one more that I just have never been able to wrap my head around. It's come up in my own research. How are we to understand dietary restriction? So ad libitum food in the lab, as we always do. I mean, of course, that's not natural. That's not sensible. But how are we to understand what dietary restriction represents in the wild. I mean, of course, there's going to be boom and bust in, in most systems, but what have you, what's the sort of normal? What's the optimal? How, how do we think about that? Because when it comes to temperature and these other sorts of things, it's pretty easy or much, at least much easier to make those links. But what do we do about restriction in a natural context? You need, we need to step away from the lab paradigm. The lab paradigm is a lab paradigm. It's yeah. powerful for biogerontology because these are good models of human diet <laughs> and potentially for human physiology. In terms of what's going on in the world, the nutritional geometry approach has power. We need to start thinking about the variation we observe and how it maps onto fitness mm-hmm. and the things that affect that. Mm-hmm. And just, I mean, for me, there is no way forward uh, for evolutionary ecologists trying to think really into it. It, 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 you get lost in it and i've always had trouble with it i think yeah. i've just almost steered clear of the literature because i can't get my head about what around what it means well basically. dietary restriction is has to be a relative mm-hmm. thing sure. right restriction relative to what and um yeah that dan is right there's going to be uh, it doesn't translate into thinking about wild ecology mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's very very hard to do it i think it, it uh, yeah I mean, of course, it's interesting to think about how diet will vary um, and how animals will respond to that in the wild. I think maybe. That's a very uh, unexpected and exciting thing that emerged from writing this paper was that when you... I kind of got, I was kind of where you are, Marty. I think of like, what is this thing? How could I... Oh, my goodness, my head hurts. I don't want to think about it anymore. Um, And what I realised particularly from like talking to Jenny, is that actually if you step back and think about, okay, this this might be a really important form of adaptive plasticity. And when we think about it from that theoretical framework, then suddenly we have these kind of principles and hypotheses we can test about plasticity, which kind of bizarrely, the more we kind of thought about talking about, they haven't been tested. Some experiments kind of accidentally stumble into cost of plasticity ideas, but everyone's so focused on diet and lifespan and aging that, that the kind of the fundamental tests sort of proof of principles which you could do really nicely in some of the lab models haven't been done. Hmm. So that's a that's a cool thing you can do in the lab that would then give you some confidence applying these ideas in the wild. I think you probably would need to establish some of these things could be true in the lab. And then you'd you'd be on a sound of putting to go and say, all right, let's let's go and see what this means in a natural context. Just a very Well that's a, that's a great setup then. Why how about tell us about the sorts of things that given unlimited resources and time. What what would you do? A complete fairy tale. But what would you what would you first try to tackle with respect to these ideas about adaptive predictive plasticity? The multiple cues. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, we were interested in 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 what the effect of, of multiple cues versus a single cue would mm-hmm. be. Um, uh, whether or not um, animals that had received a cue or hadn't received a cue were any more any better prepared for. <laughs> Uh, an oncoming stressor, 
for example, the yeah, back so put, you might predict. Yeah, put the stressor in the in the experiment. So, I mean, you might not you might not get the right pair of Q and stressor. That's the problem. We don't know what they've evolved, exactly what they've evolved to do. But but give the Q and then give the stressor and see what happens then to fitness mm-hmm. and lifespan and aging. And and I think it's really worth making the point again here that DR um, per se is not a stressor. Mm-hmm. Uh, to animals in the lab, we know that this is this is dietary restriction without uh, starvation. So, um, dietary restriction that we look at traditionally in the lab is just a cue, but without any anything to cue. Mm-hmm. So, we, we're giving animals this cue that something is coming, that they that they are changing their physiology um, in anticipation of, and we never give them that 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 stress. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, we are interested in, in 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 combining those two things, cues and stresses. In, experiments that we do. Hmm. do have you thought much yeah. about the possibility of a hierarchy of cues that there are going to be certain cues that sort of overwhelm the system and all the mm-hmm. attention goes to that path yeah that's a yeah. nice that's a nice question mm-hmm. actually and and i think that you can do that with with uh, with the multiple cue questions mm-hmm. so you can do sort of you can do things additively and uh, actually see if if you know if you do something which is multifactorial which cue wins mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or is there a winner or is it additive mm-hmm. you know so yeah i mean conceivably natural selection can shape if this is a uh, a sort of integrator it can shape the output of the integrator and the way that it responds what it responds to and how it orders that hierarchy i know i mean that's that's complete hand wavy mm-hmm. nonsense <laughs> in many respects but conceivably that could work which, right but it yeah. ought to be flexible across yeah, tax so, so you right? could get uh, in in different taxa, you could potentially have a situation with the same pathway. It can pick up these cues, but it doesn't respond in the same way to different ones. And the output in terms of phenotype and physiology is slightly different. Or maybe the physiological response is conserved, but then what it then triggers in terms of the endocrine responses and the way history changes is different. Mm. Yeah. Um, so it, it it's I mean it, it's still a massive open question. I still think you need to do the proof of principles. Is is it is it really this kind of plasticity before it's worth going there? But it's uh, it's interesting. Dan and Jenny's research reveals just how complex the web of factors is that affects aging. Understanding those connections could help us understand how we might be able to manipulate the process of aging. There's already evidence that diet restriction slows down senescence in humans. Thanks again to Functional Ecology for sponsoring this episode. You can read more about Dan's and Jenny's work in that journal, and you can find a link to the recent paper on our webpage. On the next episode of Big Biology, we present a live recorded episode at the Cary Institute in Millbrook, New York, with biologist Rick Osfeld and Felicia Kiesing. We talk with them about the dilution effect, which proposes that biodiversity protects against infection, and about their efforts to combat Lyme disease. But what it ultimately results in is a phenomenon that, you know, if you lose biodiversity from a system, you, you would get an increase in parasites in that system of a particular kind. But that's been really overgeneralized, I think, to say that biodiversity should always protect our health. And so people have put up um, comparisons saying, if, well, that can't be right because here's a situation in which biodiversity creates... This is actually similar to what you said before. Well, biodiversity could actually be a source of pathogens, right. so how could biodiversity be protective? Remember, if you'd like to post questions to our guests, become a patron and post your questions to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com bigbio. There you can also sign up to make ongoing donations to the show. Or go to our website, www.bigbiology.org, and make a one-time donation. 
And while you're there, purchase some sweet swag like t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even throw pillows. Thanks to Matt Blois for producing the episode. Haley Hansen helps with social media. Mike Levine helps with social media too, as well as Patreon. And as always, Steve Lane manages the website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear.